Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Good evening. So tonight we'll be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. If you were here last week, uh, you would have heard Jeff take us through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, uh, and he talked about all the different roles that we're meant to fill as believers. And many of the things he talked about were directions specifically for young men and women in the church on how to live our lives. He also talked about the importance of sound doctrine and what a life honoring God and adorning the gospel looks like. And if you recall a few weeks ago when this book was first introduced, uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who lived a life exemplifying all of these things. Uh, and Paul was also given authority to instruct us in these things, the same things that Jeff talked about last week, and I'll go into a little bit more detail this week. If you want to learn more, those messages have been recorded, and they can be found on Spotify or Apple Music. <clears throat> okay, so tonight, following Jeff's message, we'll be talking pretty extensively about the gospel, and more specifically, about the practical effects of putting your faith in Christ. So with that, I'll go ahead and read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is a very, very rich text. There's so much that I want to talk about just in these few verses, and I'm really excited to dig in. Um, so first, let's just look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Since we're doing an exposition in the book of Titus, this verse directly follows the message that Jeff gave us last week. So that word for, or because, is kind of the connecting uh, piece between our two messages. Last week, uh, Jeff encouraged us to do a number of things, just as Paul instructed us earlier in the chapter, to teach older men to be temperate and worthy of respect, older women to be reverent in the way they live and to teach what is good, young women to love their husbands and their children and to be self-controlled, and young men to set an example in all these things as they practice integrity and soundness of speech. In our passage tonight, Paul is going to give further reasoning to do the things that Jeff talked about last week and will further exhort us to live our lives in accordance with the instructions given to us. Because the grace of God has appeared, and it is the grace of God that teaches us to do these things. So, when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, he's referring to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who was the physical manifestation of the grace of God and being part of the Holy Trinity is himself God. And there's lots of evidence for this in scripture. For example, John chapter one, it says that the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh in the form of the man, Jesus. In Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, he's given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus himself even says, I and the father are one in John chapter 10. So again, when Paul says the grace of God appeared, he's referring to the second coming of, he's referring to the first coming of Jesus Christ, who was and is God. 
So if we move a little bit further ahead in the text to verse 14, Paul says this about Jesus. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. So I want to take some time to really understand what Paul is talking about here. I think that verse 14 really just summarizes the gospel message. Uh, It's really important that we understand what that is. And it says here in verse 14 that this is the reason Christ came, to redeem us. One of the most essential things you need to understand before you can accept Christ into your heart is that you do need to be saved. It's only when you're humbled to the point of realizing this, realizing that you need Christ and that without him you have no hope, that your life can truly begin to be transformed by him. And it's a very beautiful moment when you first accept Christ into your heart, but it does take a lot of humility. You see, God is perfect. He's also perfectly just. And because he's just, whenever something evil happens, it has to be accounted for. Um, And if it isn't accounted for, if there's any evil in the world that isn't accounted for, then God isn't God, because that's part of his character. That's part of his just character. Um, And since God is perfect, in order for anything to be in his presence and experience the nature of God to be in community with him, um, that thing also has to be perfect. And we find this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that his eyes are so perfect that he can't even look upon evil. And there's also stories in the Old Testament about people who encountered God, uh, and they were terrified because they thought that, he, that they would die just because they were in his presence. Um, and so often uh, we, see, we hear about or see people or experience people doing something that they realize is bad. Maybe they realize it's sin if they're a believer or they're not a believer and they have some other form of conviction. Um, but they either brush it off and tell themselves that their sin really isn't that bad, or they find some other, some other way not to take responsibility altogether. But regardless of these, um, we're all sinners. And if you think that you aren't, or if you think that your sin isn't that bad, uh, then that means you don't understand the God that you're sinning against. What God commands is good, right, just, and fair. And in anything we do, even in the slightest, slightest thing that goes against God and his character, you have to put it in perspective of the infinite and good nature and character of God. So the point that I'm making here is that we don't live up to that. We don't live up to the perfection of God. If God is perfect, then the things that he requires us to be is also perfect. So let me ask you this. Are you perfect? Do you live up to that standard? Exactly. Jared shook his head. No. (laughs) Is there anyone here who has never made a mistake? If your answer is yes, I've never made a mistake, you should reach 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, and then you should repent. Uh, The truth is, every one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us fails to live up to his standard that he requires in order for us to be in relationship with with him. And so, if we realize this, then we have to understand that every one of us has turned away from God, sinned against him in our hearts. And because of that, we have placed ourselves on the receiving end of God's justice, so every time we sin against God, we store up his wrath for us, um, and we shouldn't take this lightly. If God is infinite and all-powerful, and is according to the nature that we learn about him in the Bible, uh, then when we sin against him, the debt for that sin is in accordance with his character and his value 
which is infinite. Um, so if we understand this and come to terms with it, it puts us in a very humble position. We're completely at his mercy. So unless God is gracious to us and shows us mercy, then we have to suffer the punishment for those sins. And since we are finite, created creatures who owe an infinite debt to an infinite God, then unless God is gracious and provides us a way back to himself, then we're liable to spend an eternity separated from him, experiencing the punishment for an eternal debt that we could never hope to pay in full. But there's good news that God is gracious and he has provided a way for us to be forgiven. And that forgiveness became in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, who, like I said, is himself God. So when, um, and back in verse 14, Titus chapter 2, when Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us, um, this is what he's talking about. Um, when, when God forgave us, he gave Jesus to pay that debt. Um, that forgiveness that were afforded by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross isn't cheap. Um, you see, one illustration I heard about forgiveness that I'll put into a slightly different context just so we can understand and relate to it more. Um, uh, just, just an illustration. Uh, imagine if I was coming in this evening, parked in the parking lot, and hit Caleb's car and put a massive dent in it. Caleb, not wanting to drive a dented car, he then takes it to the shop, and the repair costs him $100. Caleb now has two options. He can either make me pay up, pay the $100 to fix the car, uh, and it would be perfectly just and right for him to do that, and it would cost me $100. Or out of the graciousness of his character and kindness of his heart, he can decide to forgive me instead. So when Caleb forgives me for the sin that I committed against him, it cost him hundred dollars, right? You see the point I'm making. Now take this illustration and I'll put it in the perspective of the infinity of God. If you sin against an infinite God, um, then the debt is likewise infinite. I have sinned against an infinite God. The debt I owe him for my sin likewise is infinite. Um, So, yeah, back to, back to verse 14. When Christ gave himself for us, this is what he means. Um, Christ, when he came to earth, took on the form of a man, um, and Philippians chapter 2 describes this as the highest form of humility. When Christ took on flesh, or the, or the likeness of us, um, the likeness of a man, and then you can read through the Gospels that he was beaten, bruised, mocked, tortured, and ultimately killed. And when he died, he then bore the infinite wrath of God that had been stored up for us. He bore the punishment that you and I earned for ourselves. And so on the third day, when Jesus Christ rose, he then conquered death. And by doing so, he proved all the creation that he has power over sin and that death is defeated. Because Jesus rose again, we have nothing to fear in this life or the next. Because Jesus died and rose again, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been paid for because he gave himself up for us. Um, and it's because of what Christ did that you can be made right with God. Uh, and it's not just that, but when he died and took all the punishment due to you, uh, at the same time, the righteousness that was due to him, he placed on you. So because of that, you now get to experience all the wonderful blessings that God has um, that are due to Christ, but now attributed to you. 
for all of eternity when we join him in heaven. Christian uh, had a pretty um, relevant message on this topic a few weeks ago, and I think he did a really go- good job explaining it. This message can also be found on Spotify or Apple Music. It was titled Grace to Redemption. So let's take another look at verse 11. Notice the word appear. He also uses that same word appear in verse 14. This time in verse 14, it's in reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, before Jesus left, he promised his disciples that he would return. He didn't say the hour or the year, but he did promise that he would return. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. That's when he came the first time. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for us. So, in scripture here, we are promised salvation. Those of us who are waiting for the return of Christ are promised salvation. And Christ also promised many other things for when he returns. And the book of Revelation talks a lot about what happens when Christ comes the second time. And here are some of, the, some of the promises you can find in chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more deaths or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, Christ has promised to return. And when he does, he promises us that every tear will be wiped away, that there will be no more deaths, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And God will be with us, and everything will be made new. These are the things promised to us. And there are so many more of these wonderful promises scattered all throughout Scripture. I encourage you, look for them and find them. Um, If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do a study on Romans chapter 8 and write down everything that God has promised us there in that chapter. So, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the promises that Jesus has made to us, and now you might be wondering if we can actually trust him to fulfill those promises. Well, I'm here to tell you that you absolutely can So, looking at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, uh, God says that the grace of God appeared. It appeared when Jesus Christ came the first time. Sorry, getting a feedback there. Index was on that side. Sorry about that. (laughs) So, the grace of God appeared when Christ came. It doesn't say that it began when Christ came, nor did it say it ended when he left. The grace of God didn't start or initiate when he came, it just became visible when he did. See, the grace of God is an aspect of his very nature. It is something that is inseparable from who God is. God is unchanging and everlasting. From the beginning of time until the end, God is God. He was gracious when he first created the world, and he was gracious when Christ came the first time, and he will still be gracious even when Christ comes the second time, bringing justice. And when it comes time for your life to be evaluated, you can trust that he will still be gracious even. So let's take another look at the aspect of God's character. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, which I quoted just a moment ago, says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
See, God isn't restrained by time. He, he knows all things, past, present, and future. If anything has ever happened, God was there, and he was aware of it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says that he, again in reference to Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and was then made manifest for us, so that we might put our faith and hope in God. Jesus was always known. He was always plan A. God didn't react to the fall of mankind by Jesus. He always knew it was going to happen, and he always knew that Christ on the cross would be the method through which we would be able to return to him. So, just as a side note, God wasn't surprised by Adam's sin, nor is he surprised by yours. If he forgave you in the past, he knew you would sin again, and he'll forgive you again. His grace, his forgiveness, is still sufficient. So, might seem a little off topic, but trust me, I'm going somewhere with it. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Any answers? Flight. Flight, teleportation? Those are the two examples that I use, actually. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, actually, I disagree with you. I don't think they're the best. Uh, still wrong. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's think about flying. Think about how awesome it would be to fly. You know, you could just go anywhere you wanted, completely free of gravity, and I think that would be awesome. Or maybe if you could teleport. I mean, I work in Bellevue. I drive 30 miles to work every morning and 30 miles back. I would save so much time if I could just teleport there in an instant. Um, or I would save so much money on gas, too. But I remember when I was a kid playing pretend with my sisters, my answer would always be to control time. My answer was never flying or teleportation or super strength or invincibility or anything like that. It's always time control. Because just imagine what you could do if you could control time. If I wanted to uh, play video games for the next 20 hours and still make it work on time tomorrow, I could do that. Or if I wanted to look into the future and see what the stock market is going to do tomorrow, I would have infinite money. Or I could look back in time. Prove to Jeff that the dinosaurs are real. <laughs> um, and also, if somebody ever promised me something, I would know if they were telling the truth, because so I could fast forward in time, and I would see if they ever made good on that promise. And likewise, I would know um, I would be able to keep my word whenever I made a promise. So I would know I would be able to look in for forward in time, and I would be able to tell. Well, God has that superpower. Like I described in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, he's God from everlasting to everlasting. He's infinite. He isn't constrained by time. Um, and we know this for a few other reasons, even beyond Scripture, like Einstein's theory of relativity, for example, E equals mc squared. We know that uh, time is a physical property, and therefore God can't be restrained by it. He can't be subdued by it. And there's just a quick story that I remember hearing about once about these two twins who were born in 1964 named Scott and Mark Kelly. One of the twins became an astronaut and the other a politician. When the one who became an astronaut went out into space and came back, the time gap or the age gap between the two twins increased by six milliseconds. Obviously, that's a very, very small amount of time, but it's not at all insignificant because it proves, again, that time is a physical relative property that God can't be subdued by. So... Because we know that the character of God is gracious, but we also know that he's capable of making promises that he can keep. When, when Christ promises to return, like he does throughout Scripture, and is referred to throughout Scripture, 
And the Bible talks about all the wonderful things that us believers can look forward to. Um, we can trust him to actually make good on those promises. Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, death, suffering, and pain will be no more. Everything will be restored and God will be with us. We read that again in Revelation 20, 21. So all of this is really wonderful news. If you're hearing it for the first time, or if you're confused, or you want to learn more, please come talk to either me or one of the other leaders here. We would love to get to know you and talk more about this. Um, otherwise, I hope it's been a helpful reminder, an overview of the gospel and some of the points that can be made there. Um, but with all that being said, back in our passage, uh, Paul says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. You might expect him to immediately start talking about salvation or justification or redemption, but he doesn't. Instead, as he continues in verse 12, he starts talking about the immediate practical effects of the gospel right here and right now. Because Jesus has come and the grace that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross, the forgiveness, that grace and that forgiveness teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait. See, Christ has promised to return, but he hasn't returned yet. Um, so we're in the period of waiting. Christ came once about 2,000 years ago, and he made all these promises and did this wonderful thing on the cross to forgive our sins. And before he left, he promised to return, and he promised to bring us so many more blessings and promises when he did. But he hasn't done that yet. And in the meantime, he has given us instructions on how to live our lives. Uh, in the meantime, there's something that we're meant to be doing, and that's what Paul is really getting at here in Titus chapter 2. So, and furthermore, um, another verse that I think is helpful for understanding this point is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It tells us that we are not our own and that we were bought with a price. And Jesus Christ, the one who bought us, is the same God who created us, and he has the authority to tell us how to live those lives. And it's through this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, along with all the other letters and books that make up the Bible, that, that God, that Jesus, chooses to tell us, to instruct us how to live the lives that we live. There's so, so much more that I really want to talk about in this passage, and I, there's a lot of depth to it. Um, but I think it's also important that we also have a lot of time for small group discussion so we can talk about all these things with one another. Um, there's a few more thoughts that I want to, uh, that I want to get out and talk about here. Um, just want to take a moment to consider everything that Christ has done for us. Uh, I mean, we talked about uh, some of the aspects of God tonight. We talked about how great and wonderful and powerful he really is. Um, now, if you consider the fact that he created you and that you sinned against him uh, and that he was then gracious to you and made a way for you to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, just consider what that sacrifice cost Jesus, cost him everything, cost him his life. It cost him the wrath of God poured out on him that we earned for ourselves. And so if you consider your own life, is there anything, anything at all, that God can't handle? I mean, he died 
and then he rose again three days later. If that isn't the most awesome display of power, I don't know what is. Um, if you're in this room, if you're on this earth, then I know that there's something you're struggling with. We all do, but we're all human, and we all live in a broken, sinful world. For example, maybe you're struggling with your self-worth. Sometimes we get in the habit of thinking that we aren't good enough, or that we aren't worth anything. Well, you were made in the image of God, and that alone places an indescribable and inescapable worth on you. And Christ values you so much that he thought he was worth dying on the cross to save you. Or maybe something you struggle with is your mental health. It's something I have experienced as well. So often I find myself in a depressive spiral and my body feels so heavy that I can't possibly lift it up and get myself out of bed. But the one thing that I know always pulls me out of that place is to fill my mind with the truths and promises of Christ. I remember what Christ did for me on the cross, and I remember how powerful he is, and I remember what he says about me, and suddenly it seems like my problems get a little smaller, my body gets a little lighter, I can get out of bed, face the day, because I know the value that Christ has placed on me, and I know that he has instructed me on how to live my life, and those promises that he gives me are what keep me through even the darkest moments of my life. Or maybe there's some other way that you're struggling. Maybe you've lost a loved one, or went through a breakup, or maybe you're just stressed about which college to go to. Whatever it is, Christ is there, standing in the fire with you. I can promise you that he understands what you're going through, because he suffered more than anyone else has. So if you think for even a moment that God doesn't understand your struggle, if he doesn't understand your suffering, he does. The reason he does is because he bore the wrath of God, poured out on him, that you deserve, that you earn for yourself. And so he knows what it's like to suffer, and he's there standing with you in the fire when you are as well. So I want to encourage you as you think about these things, what purpose does God have for your life? It's a wonderful thing to know that he's backing you up and there to be your strength when you come to the end of yourself. But this goes so far beyond just some self-help motivational speech. If you've ever been around salts, um, if you've been here for a while, then I'm sure you've heard the phrase saved on a purpose for a purpose. See, Christ, uh, we learn in the scripture that Christ shows us kindness and grace in order to lead us to repentance. And when we repent, turning away from the old, wicked way of life that we used to live, uh, we make the gospel really attractive to others because our lives are transformed. People can see that difference. They notice the godly ways of life that we've learned to live by studying scripture is a tool that draws more people in. So it's my hope and my prayer that as you consider the gospel and what it means for you in this life, that you will allow it to transform you and direct the way that you live your life and people will notice the transformation. And when you dedicate yourself to living a godly, upright, and holy life, that's an avenue for more people to come to faith, and more souls will be saved. It's really common to see people who are believers kind of forget about all of this and not really understand the weight consequences of the life that they lead. Um, so often I see people going to work who are believers, they are Christians, and you just don't know any different uh, because they haven't really lived it out in every area of their lives. Um, sometimes we just get in the habit of thinking that 
oh, I'm saved, so I'll just live the rest of my life doing whatever I want because I know that God will forgive me at the end of it. Well, I don't want to be like that. I want to be somebody who understands the weights and the true meaning of the gospel and how it applies to my life specifically and how it can apply to others as I hopefully lead them closer to Christ as well. I don't want to be somebody who just kind of thinks that all doesn't matter anyways because I know where I'm going at the end of it. I'm good. I want to be somebody who cares about others. And I want our community to be a community that cares about others. I want our community to be a community that is alive in our faith and embraces the wonderful and abundant gift of life that God has given to us. And just as iron sharpens iron, I want to encourage all of us as a community to pursue those things together.